Welcome to the Connection Podcast. A couple of special things happening on this episode today. First of all, we're talking to a friend of mine, Peter Grossnickel. Some of you don't know, but we go really far back with the Grossnickels. Uh, my wife, Camille, and Peter's wife, Yana, were friends from, I believe, second grade on. So when I say later in the podcast today that these people are friends that are like family to us, that's a big part of why we, we have a lot of history with them. Peter is one of the more thoughtful people I've ever met, and I think you're going to really see that play through in, in the episode today. Definitely a spiritual conversation. Another thing I'll note today is this is the first episode where Andrew Marchin came to guest host, so he did a great job too, let him know. Absolutely loved his contributions today too. I think you're going to love this episode. Take care. Welcome to the Connection Podcast. I'm Jason Keister, the show's producer, and we have our guest today with us, Peter Grossnickel of Springfield Fourth Ward. Welcome, Peter. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. And we also have a brand spanking new guest host with us today. That would be Andrew Marchant. Hello, tis I, Andrew Marchant. <laughs> we just keep <laughs> tapping into the Marchant family. I love it. And we have a guest host that everybody knows at this point, Tina Marchant. Welcome, Tina. I don't know if that's good or bad, but I'm always happy to be <laughs> Oh, here. It, is, it is very good. And stick around next week because Tina's coming back for her second interview. That should be awesome. So Brooke was not available? Totally excited to have you. <laughs> Andrew, think highly of you. And when I heard Tina was going to be here, I was just thrilled. You know, super, super person. I'm just very excited. Guys, we just got done with a special state conference, and for conspiracy theorists, I feel like it was a bit of a letdown because we had the presiding bishop and Elder Gong here. There were all sorts of theories about what that meant. We ended up getting a lot of education about the temple that's coming to the area. They didn't divide the stake, didn't reorganize the tri-stake area. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> but there were there was a lot of good instruction and lesson, and I I just wanted to go around the room here and talk about... What was your one big takeaway from this past weekend? And we'll start with Andrew. I had the opportunity to go to the the youth session uh, with Elder Gong. I got to shake his hand. That was pretty cool. But I really liked all the talks. The, the theme of the whole conference I noticed was getting to understand how to share the gospel and how to share it in normal and natural ways. So it was, it was really cool. Drew made a comment today that also pertain to this. He said in his talk that Christ-like love is getting to understand people. So as you understand people, you love people more. Um, and I think that that's exactly what they were talking about to sum it all up yesterday. Right on. So good. What, what about you, Peter? Oh, several things run through my head when Bishop Keister, when you talked about you know, what we have now is what we're going to have. There was no division of the stake or anything like that. I, I wasn't expecting anything like that. But um, what we have now is the same thing that we've had. We have a temple in Portland. And the, the message to me was, you know, it doesn't matter for me if it's in Eugene or if it's in Portland. I am a covenant member of the church. I'm a covenant disciple of the Savior Jesus Christ. And I asked myself the question, what's stopping me from being able to make time in my schedule to be an ordinance worker in Portland? It may not be convenient, 
but uh, just thought of the way that I could be blessed and hopefully bless others by doing that. So it, it made me think about a lot of things, um, covenant-wise, and then also talking about the sacrament as well. And we may talk more about that later, may not. Cool, great. And what about you, Tina? Um, I really gravitated towards President Fuller's talk today, actually, about we said, remember who you are and what you stand for. And and the part that stuck out to me the most was when he was talking about remember who you are and that we are children of God and that is our first and foremost identity. And we identify with a lot of other things along the way, you know, mother, sister, brother, um, parts of our professions, you know, like a lot of those things we can identify with. Um, but first and foremost, we identify as a child of God and um, – just a little sneak peek for our series that starts next week, um, the Who We're Becoming series. You know, like there's there's a lot about identity in that series and how we define who we are now and and who we're becoming. And um, the part that is awesome is if you know you're a child of God, you always have a solid foundation in your identity. Even if the other parts are struggling or you're not sure who you are or what you're doing in other parts of your life, you have that to f always, you know, be the foundation of, of who you are. And so I, I will really, that stuck out to me like a lot today. Thank you so much. I, I really enjoyed that talk as well. And I, I actually admired his composure to speaking, you know, so casually and joking in front of, you know, the presiding bishop. Yeah. Just, yeah. Vulnerable. So true. Yeah, I love it. That is, that is his, his willingness to be vulnerable in that moment was pretty cool. I, for me, what stuck out during the leadership session was just a instruction that came over and over again, which was the temple coming to this area. It's not a, it's not a gift or a reward, although it feels that way. It's a call to action. Peter, like you were saying, we need to get ready now. And part of that is finding how we can serve or how we can get ready to serve because there's a practicality to the fact that we need people there to make that thing run. And God is not only getting us a temple here in this area, but he's building an army. And are we going to jump in and be part of that army or not? Yeah. I mean, the, the temple president yeah. said that, right? He said, we need at least 500 people to be serving in the temple to have it running full time. And I was like, whoa, 500 people. That's that's going to take a lot from the wards in the area, especially, I think, because we are so close. It's, it's mm -hmm. going to be a lot of temple workers from our stakes. Yeah. yeah. Well, we've been, we've been doing our tour of, it feels like this season we've been doing the tour of fourth ward. Like we long neglected <laughs> fourth true. ward and we, we finally, finally came in and, and started to get to know some of our friends in fourth ward. So for those who don't know you, Peter, let's just think of the hypothetical situation. You're in a new ward, you're asked to speak in sacrament and introduce your family for a little bit and go. All right. When I'm new in a ward, which we have been several times because we, as our kids like to say, we've moved six times in... I think they say six and a half times in five years. Little half move was just kind of being homeless for a few weeks. Um, and that all worked out. But introducing myself in a new ward, um, I usually don't usually don't say a lot, but I do think it's important just to just to say off the bat, if you're somebody who is greeting me and and I'm in your ward, it may seem a little off-putting. Um, how quiet I am in the chapel. And to me, uh, the, the chapel is a special place. It's, it's obviously the largest room. It's the nicest room. It seats a lot of people. 
Um, but for me, I like to think of it as an ordinance room. We are baptized once. We received the gift of the Holy Ghost once. We are ordained to the Melchizedek priesthood once. We are endowed once. Um, but at the sacrament, we have the opportunity to renew all of our covenants. And that's just significant to me. So for me, that starts usually Saturday during the day or during the evening, pondering my week and looking at what I can change and the attitude that I need to have through the Sabbath. And then on Sunday, um, I try to be reflective and and get to church early and sit there and, and pray or study the scriptures. And it might be a little offensive if you come say hi and I've got my head bowed and I'm speaking with my Heavenly Father and I ask myself the question, do I pause my conversation with Heavenly Father to shake hands with this ward member or or you know, do I continue on with Heavenly Father? And, and so I don't want you to be put off if that happens to you. If you see me in the chapel, I I try to act in a certain way there. That's what I need on the Sabbath day. And I know other people really like a handshake and, and maybe to be a, l- a little more um, friendly and, and warm and welcoming. And I hope that I do that outside of the chapel and that I welcome everybody. Um, but that's just a little insight into me and my Sabbath day and the blessing I feel it is to partake of the sacrament and and have kind of that experience throughout the whole day of renewal. Cool. I, I just wanted to pause for a second there because we that's a pretty interesting insight. I wondered Tina or Andrew, any thoughts just on what we're talking about with the sacrament? I I bless the sacrament almost every week because we only have two priests in our ward regularly. And as I'm preparing the sacrament, I also have this little this little conversation in my head, kind of thinking about what I'm doing to prepare to be worthy to bless the sacrament and also what I'm doing to help others feel the spirit in the way that I bless and break the bread and water. I think it's so awesome, Andrew, that you get to speak the words of the covenant, you know? Yeah. Never really thought about it before, but I like that. I never thought about that until as a priest, I had a, a lady come up to me and, and just say, I'm grateful for how slowly and deliberately you say the words of the prayer because it helps me to really think about what I'm doing and what it means. And secretly in the back of my head, I was thinking, that's as fast as I can read. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> but, but I, I, it always stuck with me because it it is so important to really ponder what's happening there. And and I've had a similar uh, change, Andrew, where I, I also try to just focus myself several minutes before. And for those who don't know, Andrew Marchant is there super early every mm-hmm. Sunday and, and getting ready to prepare for that ordinance. So thank you for doing that, by the way. If I show up later than Andrew, I know that I, I dawdled too much. So. <laughs> it's my and, pleasure. Any other thoughts, Tina? Uh, I was just thinking about our family has always kind of made it a point to be there um, 15 minutes early. That's we set our watches by when we need to leave the house to get there at that time um, for for that purpose, even when they were little, was to to settle down, to get set and prepared kind of for that sacrament ordinance Um so that's always been really important to us. And I also understand the the importance of the social aspect of the ward, too. So I can see how other people are 
preparing in different ways. And so I, I appreciate the quietness that Peter puts into that and the thoughtfulness and then the thoughtfulness that Andrew puts in. And then our family, we like to get settled and, and we don't socialize too much as we're as we're approaching the time for sacrament to start, but also to greet people as much as we can. And like Peter was saying, you know, just that that part's important too. So I I kind of appreciate the whole of it all. But um, I know when Alan was bishop, he was really into asking people to come and sit down early and, and prepare their thoughts and and to be a little more reverent in the chapel space. So I, I can appreciate that too. Cool. Well, I should probably introduce my family as well. Yeah, yeah <laughs> that's good. So. Don't say any of the names wrong because President Fuller will never live that down. You have several <laughs> kids. There's several opportunities to mess up. Yeah. No, my wife is Yana. We've been married 20 years. We've got Anna, Carter, Susan, and Rebecca. And we have lived in a variety of places, Vancouver, Washington. From there, we went to Tri-Cities. We lived in both Richland and Pasco, two different places in Pasco. And from Tri-Cities, we went to Pendleton, Oregon. And from Pendleton to Oregon City, Oregon City to Redmond, two different places there, and then to Springfield. So we've we've been all over, but we hope to stay here for a while. Anna is probably the least outgoing and social one of our children, and she has amazing talents in art, and she's an incredible listener, wonderful personality. Just I love taking car rides with Anna. Um, Carter, probably more people know Carter than know me or anybody on this <laughs> podcast. Carter gets around. He's he's an awesome friend and a good kid. And then yeah, Susan, yeah. Got to amen for that. Susan's just super dedicated, persistent, and uh, very focused. Incredible person. Rebecca is our youngest, and she's just really has an awesome heart. She's great to sit down on the couch with and hold hands, and just just wants to be close and cuddle and and love me in the way that she does. In the Gross Nickel Kids, for those of you who have been by the Keister House and realize how much we go out for Halloween. Um, <laughs> if you have been scared by somebody walking up to our house, it was probably a gross nickel kid. Just saying that. Yeah. So you can thank them. Most if likely you, Carter. Yep, if you peed your pants, something like that, <laughs> you know, maybe you don't have to tell me about that, but it was probably a gross nickel kid that scared you. So they love that. Yeah. Our families actually go way back. My yeah. wife, Yana and Bishop Keister's wife, Camille, were like childhood friends and just lived over a fence from each other or across the fence and knew each other really very well. And that was a huge draw in wanting to move to Springfield that my wife, Yana could be close to somebody she was already friends with and, and we could grow the friendship from where it was. Which I think is, is cool. And maybe I haven't gotten a chance to tell you this, but you have friends that you hang out with, but then there's the friends that are like family. And I think for both of us, we don't have a lot of family nearby. So, you know, it's either a long drive or a plane flight. So to be able to spend Christmas Eve with you guys and things like that, it's been really cool. And it feels like having family right here in the area. Totally. Feel the same way. Um, Thank you. So let's let's get into this a bit. Andrew, what did you want to ask Peter about? Okay. This is going to be switching gears quite a lot. Um, but I saw on your areas of expertise that you said you know a lot about six-liter power stroke engines. <laughs> That's uh, very specific. Yeah, well, that specific engine had many problems with it, and I decided to buy a pickup with that engine. Being warned about, haven't been warned about some of the problems. Um, 
But as each thing occurred, I, I gained more and more education in diesel engines and how they run and how to remove and replace fuel lines and what a EGR cooler and oil cooler do when they fail. And just each, each thing that came up was a great learning opportunity to learn more about engines and diesel engines and specifically the shortcomings of, of that specific engine, which we had that truck for about two years. It went with my pest and weed control business. And then we were able to put a lot of work into it. I remember times where Yana was like leaned over the hood as far as she could and she's holding a tool and I'm underneath trying to, trying to like grab the tip of that tool and guide it somewhere. And we're both trying to communicate through the engine nooks and crack crannies that are there. Mm -hmm. And she has uh, memories that aren't super fond of, of working <laughs> on it. <laughs> and then we've got a picture of Susie just standing there with, with the car jack pumped all the way up and she's standing on top of it with just this really cute smirk on her face. So the whole family got involved. I was just thinking of something. So this is, I'm hopefully not catching you super off guard here. Not exactly sure how to ask the question, but I've known you pretty well, gotten to know you over the years. And one thing I know about Peter Groschnickel is that when you, you know, have a new hobby or not even a hobby, but you get into something like you go hard <laughs> and, and, and if it's learning about photography, which maybe we'll get into later, it's like. I'm going to learn everything about photography and I'm going to sit on my computer and figure it out. And I just wonder, could you tell me more about your thought process when you are getting into something new and learning about it? Ooh, difficult to do. I don't know if I could describe my thought process. And Yana would probably be a great one to talk about this rather than... She'll be like, yeah, I don't see him for three weeks. That's the... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> no, don't find me, you know, with 80 browser tabs open yeah. and researching something that maybe has not even been on the radar before. And she's, you know, she just knows, oh, he's, he's into something. He's learning about something that seems like we could have no interest in it. But, uh, you know, I'm now like a very good, I'm a very learned epoxy aficionado. And the kids know when they come to me for help. Putting two things together, it's it's going to be some sort of epoxy. <laughs> you know, it's same thing with water heaters and you know, photography. You mentioned um, could be pest control chemicals, uh, just about anything. That's it that seems like you get some genuine enjoyment about learning a new skill or or learning just about something. I do, and I I think. There's the enjoyment side, and then there's like the buyer's remorse side that I that I don't want to have. And I've I've spent time looking at vehicles one time where I probably invested 40 hours in figuring out what might be the best vehicle for me. And I was like, awesome, Toyota 4Runner. And at that point, I went and sat in a car, you know, any of the cars I had been researching for the first time and realized that like half of them on my list. I had to disqualify because I didn't fit inside the car. You know, I've got I've got a 36-inch inseam and it's hard to stuff my legs into a vehicle and fit comfortably. And so this is a gonna... tall person problem that I didn't yeah. know about. But <laughs> I didn't understand that. I got it, like... I got when I got a new truck, I got a call from Stetson Bear. Many of yeah. you know Stetson in our word, about six nine. And he said, Jason, can I come over to your house? And I was like, why? And he said, I need to see if I fit in your truck. <laughs> and I was like, is this something I don't know about? And he said, yeah, I have to actually sit in a vehicle to know if I can buy it. Because yeah. if I don't fit, it's out. 
Uh, definitely never had that problem no never had that problem at all i would say there's there's some low-key benefits to being average or short although i did have the opposite problem trying to get into stetson's truck if you've ever seen stetson's truck it's ginormous you can't get in yeah the the footboard comes up to my chest so like just getting into the truck was a challenge plus then i sat in the seat and i said how do i move this seat up he goes it doesn't go up like, it's a bucket seat. Yeah, it does. It like scoots forward, but it doesn't go up. And I was like, I can't even see over the steering wheel. I felt like I was five years old. Yep. <laughs> it was the opposite problem. Oh, so good. And Tina, let, let's go to you for a minute. What else do you want to talk about? Um, I wanted to ask Peter about deciding to change majors because Andrew is approaching college. And so it's kind of been on my yep. mind. We've had conversations about what he wants to do and and – um, I think there's a lot of pressure for kids to choose something and because um, they have to put that on their application, like what they've chosen. And I, when I went into college, I was undecided because I had no idea. So I went in undecided and learned after my first year that they wouldn't let me register for classes without picking a major. So, <laughs> so that was kind of pressure in a different way. Um, but I also know people that change majors seven or eight times. And so I've been trying to talk to him about, you know, what that's like to change a major and that it's okay to change majors. And I'm not sure exactly how you feel about it, but I kind of wanted to see what your experience with that was. Totally. Well, kudos to you for being undecided. I think that's awesome that you can, you can, you know, write down and say, hey, I'm not sure yet, but I'm going to figure it out. I, I probably had the opposite problem where I grew up in a household where, like, I knew from my dad that there were only a few certain careers that were, that were like approved, you know, and and my dad would get behind those. And one of those careers was being an electrical engineer. Uh, so believe it or not, the two brothers that are older than me are both electrical engineers at Intel. And I was sure that I wanted to be an electrical engineer and work for Intel. When I was 16, I got a really cool apprenticeship position where I worked at a at an engineering firm that designs infrared cameras, FLIR, FLIR. And it was an awesome time to spend to have experience really kind of seeing what engineers do. I designed a circuit board for an infrared camera that was named after me, which is absolutely not well known. <laughs> Nobody knows what the gross nickel emulator is and, and why it was called that. But anyway, that was that was great experience. And I went into college thinking I need to do this because it's a respectable career and like it's what I've chosen and I'm good at it. And then I went on my mission and I realized, like, I don't want to be an engineer. I can't sit in front of a computer all day. I really want to interact with people. I want to try to make a difference in people's lives. And if I were to spend my career playing a small role in developing a computer chip, how much satisfaction would that really give me? And I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I was honest enough with myself to say, I, I don't want to be an engineer. And I came home. And I felt best about changing my major, not to, not to something that would bring me towards a job that I wanted, because I still had no idea what I wanted to do. I changed my major to what's called marriage, family, and human development. And that's what I most wanted to learn about, because I felt like the family I grew up in was distant, was emotions didn't come to the surface, and we didn't talk about emotions. And I wanted to learn how to really connect with people. On my mission, I saw into the lives of hundreds of people and I saw companions who were just like devastated when something happened to a sibling or they were like exuberant when something awesome happened. And I was like, I just don't feel that way about my family and I want to learn 
how to do that, how to listen to people, how to understand them, how to how to connect with them. And so for me, it was very much a major for life and not something that led me to a specific career. I thought for a while I wanted to be a marriage and family therapist. And right before it was time to apply for that, I came, we were married and I, I came into the apartment, lay down on the bed and I was like, I don't want to be a marriage and family therapist. And, <laughs> and I was like, what? You graduate in like three weeks. Uh, I was like, what do you want to do? And I, again, just said, no idea. And I've ended up working in the medical sales profession and it's been uh, engaging and rewarding for me. And I feel like the education about family life really helped me to connect with Yana when we first met and fall in love and see the good things that she was looking for in the family that we created together. That That's really cool for me because I, I, for the longest time, I wanted to also be an engineer, uh, specifically mechanical, because I have I have two uncles who work for Raytheon and it's it's been really cool to talk with them and see the things that they build. As I've been kind of getting older this last year, I've realized that I really don't want to be a mechanical engineer. And I'm, I'm leaning more towards the side of architecture and going into civil engineering and then switching over to architecture as my major. So we'll see how that goes. But awesome. Um, yeah. Yeah, I love the idea of of taking the things that you're passionate about. If you don't know Andrew, he's he's very passionate about drawing. Um, you you should ask to see his his sketchbook sometimes. It's pretty awesome. But he draws a variety of things, but buildings is among them. And so architecture has always kind of caught his eye. And and I love that idea of being able to take something you're passionate about and make that something that you can you know do as a career too. So it, I think he's been really thoughtful about that. But. Also, I like your story because it says, you know, don't be afraid to change your major for what you need in life. You know, like it's okay to go a different route to get to where you are because I don't think anybody would say, oh, he's a, he definitely graduated in marriage, family, and human relations. You know, like <laughs> that that doesn't seem like because of your career what you would have graduated in, but it's also been the best thing for you. So it's, you know, sure. it's really interesting how that sometimes just works itself out. Yeah. Can you think of other ways that your major has helped you just in your career or life? I, I know in the home life, obviously, but just working with other people, I know that's a big part of what you do. Definitely. I, I feel like some of the most fulfilling times for me have been the last four and a half years. I've worked with patients who have chronic nerve pain and Chronic pain can affect so many different aspects of your life and especially your marriage. To be able to work with a thousand people who have chronic pain and see the difference between those who have driven their spouse away and those who are happily married and supported by spouse and family like has made a big impact to me. But I also feel like it's given me an opportunity to make a difference in people's lives. And as I'm talking to them about pain and, and a device that might help with their pain, I also know that it's important to, to talk about family support, to talk about the different effects of that pain. Pain can have a big effect on your emotions as well. So it's it's easy to get depressed and it's easy to give up hope. And the stage at which I worked with patients was one where most of them had tried numerous therapies. Some of them have had, have had one, two, five, even 10 back surgeries. And sometimes the surgery helped the pain and then it came back stronger. It came back in a new place. And so um, one of the biggest challenges was just to be real with them and to let them know like, it's okay to have hope. This works about 80% of the time. You might not be one of those 80% of people, 
And if you're not, there are still options. Um, but then as they progressed through the experience of trying out the therapy, uh, when it worked for them, I loved having the experience of seeing their despair turn into hope, turn into joy, and to say, I can have so much of my life back that I've given up. Mm. Um, so that's been super fulfilling for me. That's really cool. I I love that. And uh, there are a few things I'll take away from my own work too, because I do think that chronic pain is a, a big part of it, but there's other struggles that people go through. And we could go into a spiritual side too, because I think there is a spiritual component there, but where we just lose hope. And and I, I met a lot of people like that. And I love that statement that you made. It's okay to hope. Yeah. Like it, it's okay and, and be okay with you know, I I might get hurt again, but I I gotta believe I gotta hope. Yeah, for sure. I love that. I I wanted to ask you about a story I've been wondering about because I haven't heard this before. I don't think, but the the Freeberg Temple story, and I think it goes along with what you said: meeting the most with the greatest faith. And that was a typo. I should have said uh, meeting the man with the greatest faith. Oh, the man <laughs> with the greatest faith. <laughs> yeah, makes more sense now. Makes more sense. Meeting the most, but. Uh... That's a little cell phone typo. Though so the the Freiburg Temple was in my mission. I served in Germany in the in the part that had been Eastern Germany for for forty years behind the Iron Curtain, and I learned so much from those people. But kind of the the origin story of the Freiburg Temple was in nineteen seventy, President Monson came to dedicate the land of East Germany for the work of the Lord moving forward. During that time, churches could not own land. If you were a member of a faith group, you were often disadvantaged. You couldn't have a management position at work. Sometimes you were, you were not allowed to attend college if you were a member of a church. And then all church meetings were spied on. There were either spies there or somebody would come up to you afterwards and say, hey, I know you were at this meeting. Your wife takes this bus schedule and she walks down this street and she gets on that bus and, you know, it would be terrible if something happened to her. You're going to tell us what was said at this meeting and was anything bad said about the government and, you know, were names named and, and so it was, it was just a very difficult time for members of the church. The members were not, of course, they were not allowed to leave East Germany to attend the temple. And after years, members of the, the government officials met with church leaders Elder Nelson was there. Elder Monson was there. I don't know who else was there, but basically the, the leaders of the East German nation said, we have so much data on your people. Like we have files and files of things we've observed. We know that they're good citizens. They try to live life honestly and live the best life they can. We know that you pay tithing, and that's incredible to us. And they just had all these things that they knew about the church and members of the church. And they basically said to the church leaders, make your desires known to us. And the first thing we asked for was, our people need to be able to leave East Germany to attend the temple in Switzerland. And the government came back and they said, well, why don't you just build a temple here? And the thought <laughs> was just like so incredible of having a building where we could dedicate it. And then no spies, no listening devices, members of the church could go in and worship as they pleased. So over time, they were, they were blessed with a temple. They were blessed to have stakes and patriarchs and to send missionaries out before the wall came down. And those are just incredible miracles. During 
Uh, and two related experiences. During that prayer of dedication given by President Monson in 1970, uh, there were a small group of church members present, probably eight. One of them was a man named Henry Burkhart, and he had been the district president of the church behind the, behind the Iron Curtain for kind of all the East European countries. Because there were no stakes, you know, there was, there was, it was run by a district, and the district president served for, I think, several decades and was kind of like the leader of the church behind the Iron Curtain. Well, during this dedicatory prayer, President Monson said, you know, we, we give thee thanks for Henry Burkhart, and then said the following statement, we know of no man in thy kingdom with greater faith. And I got to listen to this recording sitting across the table from Henry Burkhart in his home where he played it for us. And here is this gentle, unassuming man in his 70s. His wife had purple hair, which was not uncommon <laughs> in, in Germany. And I looked at him and I thought, we know of no man in thy kingdom with greater faith. That's coming from, at the time, Elder Monson. You know, what in the world? And it just boggled my mind to know that Heavenly Father and the Savior have people of great faith all over the earth playing important roles in the kingdom, whether it be in their own home and family or whether it be in remote areas of the church. And these people of faith just, just play an incredible role. And I was so used to like the higher your calling is, you know, the more faith you have, the the more righteous you are. And it kind of changed my perspective a little bit to say that we all have a role to play and we can fulfill those roles with integrity and giving all all that we have. And and President Hinckley used to say, you know, your responsibility is as important as my responsibility, like you being being righteous and fulfilling your responsibility. And so I, I loved that. A, a personal experience that I had in the Freiburg Temple was that I was I was serving as an assistant to the mission president. It was the final couple months of my mission, and I thought a lot about my dad, who at the time was having his name removed from the church and now is, is still not active in the church, um, but taught me a lot of wonderful things about German culture and, and a love for Germany. And I was so excited when I got my mission call to Leipzig, Germany. But I was in the temple and I was thinking, what did my dad do on his mission 30 years ago in Berlin? And what kind of things did they teach? Are we teaching the same principles? Was he a good missionary? And just had a lot of these questions. I went through an endowment session and then the other half of the mission was going to go through another endowment session. And I was really looking forward to paying attention to a couple of things within the endowment ceremony. And a temple worker walked up and he asked my name. And I said, Brother Grossnickel. And right away he asked, Var vielleicht your father I miss you now in Deutschland? In other words, was perhaps your dad a missionary in Germany? I said, yeah. He said, 30 <laughs> years ago? Yeah, exactly. In Berlin? Yes. And he put his hand over the changing room door to shake mine. He said, I'm Gerhard Grunewald. I was bishop of a ward in Berlin your dad served in 30 years ago. I remember your dad. He was a good missionary. Couldn't believe it, you know? Do you remember missionaries from five years ago or 10 years ago? And here this brother remembered my dad. And that was just such a special, tender mercy to me to be able to connect with my dad and with the good people of Germany. 
That's really neat. It, it makes me think of several other moments I've had in the temple that are tender mercies or I even call them like breadcrumbs sometimes, just little hints that God's saying, I'm here, I'm in this, you know? I mean, I think that was a moment like that for you. Absolutely. Um, I, I was thinking of a couple of things from that story, and one in particular is just that a temple can, it can tell a story about a people. And I, I think that there's an incredible story there just in Germany about how that came to place. And it, it talks about the faith of the people in the area. It makes me wonder a bit, what is the story that we're writing right now? What is the story of the Willamette Temple going to be? And it also, it just made me reflect on having faith. And in a story I really like from, I think, Matthew 8, it's, it's a story of a centurion who asked for his servant to be healed by Jesus. And it's one of the, I think it's one of two times in the New Testament where it actually says that Jesus was marveled by something. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, and I love that line where it says, Jesus was marveled by the faith of the centurion when he came and approached him. And I, I was just thinking about, is Jesus marveled by my faith right now? And and if not, what do I have to do to where he marvels at that? I just, what are you guys' thoughts on that or anything else we're talking about? I think kind of what I was thinking about in, in relation to that and, and something you said earlier was, you know, all of the miracles that came about to to get that temple um, into East Germany is, is incredible. Um, and thinking about you know, they had those spies in their meetings every week and in their lives and watching them. And if they weren't living their faith, it wouldn't have happened. Like they wouldn't have been able to have the temple and and how just us, like Andrew was saying, they talked a lot this weekend about just living the gospel and talking about the gospel in really natural ways because we just live it, right? And I feel like Every day we get up and say, I just want to live it today. And even if we don't do it perfectly, if we're, you know, making those strides and saying, I'm, I'm going to do my best to to do what Jesus would do and to be his kind of representative for that day, I think he does look down and say, I marvel at that, you know, because there's a lot, there's a lot that is around us, but I feel like just walking in faith, people notice. And uh, we just had a, a barbecue, a, a block party at our house. Alan's very social. He's really good mm-hmm. at it. Um, <laughs> and he's just loves bringing people together. And so a lot of the neighbors have been asking about our backyard. Uh, so he wanted to bring them all over and show them the backyard. So we just had a, a potluck barbecue at our house and and got a whole bunch of the neighbors together, some we'd never met before, and they hadn't met each other before, and it was just really fun. But a lot of them asked, you know, like, they asked us questions about the, our kids. They've noticed our kids in the neighborhood. They've noticed, you know, some of the things that were going on. And it was a really great opportunity to talk about, you know, and they and they left in the middle to go listen to Elder Gong. And yeah, well, where'd we your kids go? go? Yeah, well, they went to a youth group and they wanted to go and hear one of our leaders of our church talk. And um, it's just, it was a really natural and easy way to talk about the gospel. So I feel like just living your faith is how we open those roads, like the, like the road was open for the temple. Awesome. That's so cool. What are, what are your thoughts, Andrew, just in this topic that we're discussing of faith? That's that's so cool that uh, you got to meet the the man with the most faith or the greatest faith. Don't we all want uh, a member of whatever part of the, the church to be able to say that about us or to be able to, to say that 
this this man, I know he can follow through and that he he has the faith to do this calling, do this organize this activity or whatever it is, and to be able to be that person that can be depended upon to do your duty is it's yeah. really cool. Yeah, and I I think you brought up a good point too, Peter. It's it's anybody can start there. It it, it yeah. that's one of the greatest part of that story is that it wasn't a general authority, mm-hmm. you know, who they called out or anything like that. It was somebody who could be you or me, you know. Mm-hmm. Um and I feel being on the other side of things a little bit when, you know, in a leadership position, and I've shared this over the pulpit too. I I feel like a lot of time we're put in those leadership positions because we need to learn that faith, mm-hmm. and it's a mechanism for us doing that. It reminds me of another experience on my mission. I was in the mission office, and the phone rang, and I picked it up, and it was a brother from down south for me a little while, little ways, and he said, "Ah, Elder Grossnickel, I would like you." to print off a list of all the missionaries who are not allowed to drive in Germany because their licenses are from states that the European Union doesn't recognize or pre-European Union doesn't recognize as being able to be exchanged for a German license. And you know, I'm kind of like, okay, why? And he said, the Lord needs all of our missionaries to be able to drive in Germany to move forward his work. This is an impediment to doing the Lord's work. And so I want this list and I'm working on getting everybody, every missionary able to exchange your license for a German license. And my response was, well, that's, that's not the law. I mean, that's not how the company is, not the company, sorry, the country is set up. He said, elder, where's your faith? The Lord needs this to move his work forward. So I'm going to ask for it. And it taught me a lot about I think the greatest faith that I can show is doing the Lord's work. You know, it's not sitting there pondering three hours a day on understanding cerebrally what faith is, but it's going out and it's doing. And it's, you know, I believe the, the priesthood, the power of God, what does he use his power for us to do his work? And when we participate in doing his work, our faith grows and our, our ability to access his power grows. Whether we're brother, sister, child, we're accessing the power of God in our lives. Thank you. I love that conversation. I, I really like where that went. I think we're back to Andrew. You wanna, What else do you want to ask about? So we talked about engines already. Um, you have a story about riding your motorcycle up a tree. <laughs> I'm very curious about that one. That's good. I like that change of pace for right now. That's good. That's a favorite in our family. But when I was young, I was very persistent. When I got an idea into my head, like I, I was going to do it. And my mom explains it a very different way. My mom says that I was just so stubborn and I would not learn. Like she could, you know, take me. F- from, from something I did that she didn't like and give me a swat on the bottom or put me on timeout and I would like go and do the same thing again. And she does over and over and over and over and I did not learn. And the way I look at it is, well, mom, did you try a different approach or what did you learn? <laughs> no, but it's it's that I was, I was just a very persistent person and still am, can be quite persistent. So I was at the coast, Oregon coast, I think, um, uh, the one with the rock in the water. What's that beach? Cannon Beach with some friends. 
And I had my motorcycle there and my friend had his motorcycle there. And in the yard of this beach house was a tree that grew slanted. And I think we can all imagine like those trees that you try to climb up sometimes, or there's a rope swing and a good one outside of Lieberg, where you can kind of walk up this tree that's at about a 45 degree angle. And I was just a, a younger boy sitting there on my motorcycle, looking at that tree and wondering how far could I get riding up that tree? You know? <laughs> it's it's pretty skinny. It was, it was probably like <laughs> seven inches in diameter. And I just kept awesome. staring at it and thinking, how far could I get up that tree? And finally, when my friend wasn't watching, I was like, okay, I have permission now. Nobody's watching. So I'm going to go for it. And I got a good like seven or eight feet up the tree. And all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, how do I get down? <laughs> <laughs> Never You're about to about find that. out. Yeah. <laughs> and I fell off the left side of the tree. Like I fell first and then the motorcycle fell and landed right on top of me and burnt my wrist. Um, oh, but no. I survived and it's an awesome story. <laughs> but I survived. So, yeah. When, when our daughter, Susan, who's also very persistent, was a young child, my wife and I would say that she both got the curses of our mothers. Like, someday you'll have a child, like, just as difficult as you were. <laughs> and I'm a third child of four. My wife's a third child of four. Susie's third of four. And, and we just looked at Susan and we're like, you know, that's, that's the curse come true, <laughs> but we're going to love it because she's going to be a force to be reckoned with. And she always has been. Yeah. That's so great. It makes me think of all the motorcycle and ATV trips I've been on. And every time I come back with a Camille, I almost died doing, you know, whatever this time. And she's like, cool. Why do you do this? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like yeah. that kind of sums up like men and women in general. Like <laughs> men are like, I, I bet I could do that. I'm just going to try it. And then the halfway through, you're like, oh, I should have thought about what might happen. And women are like, well, I, this might happen. I'm not even going to try that. <laughs> right? It's like they come at it from different angles. Carter's oh. totally done that when it comes to wakeboarding. We've a couple times this summer, we've gone uh, with our my cousins, the other marchants, and uh, we, we went wakeboarding. And Carter... Carter was there and he strapped the wakeboard on and he's just like, I'm going to jump the wake. And so we're like, okay, you've never done any anything like this before. And he was like, I'm going to do it. And so over and over again, he would just crash and crash and crash. <laughs> it looked so, so painful. Oh, there you go. The curse got passed going. over double. That's <laughs> so good. <laughs> I think that's awesome. My name on, on a in the boating world with my wife's family who grew up boating is the crash master. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's a good title. I like that. We had a, I got to remember that later. Crash master. Crash master. That's good. Tina, what else did you want to get into? Um, This one actually caught my eye because this like speaks directly to me, but I also do photography um, and I d I've done quite a few family portrait type things but my my first love is always the landscape photography so when you said that you like to go find awesome and remote things to photograph like that's totally me you can ask and on our trip to utah we were did the, yeah. the national parks and they were mm. always waiting for me on the trailer like, where did mom go and i had stopped to take more pictures mm -hmm. <laughs> it's my curse it was fun though well that reminds me of a good experience my uh my family loves looking at the pictures, I hope, but uh, does not. they don't always love being there with me to take them. I was, I, I got everybody up at like two in the morning 
last year when we were in southern Utah and we went up to Zion. No, mm-hmm. went to Bryce Canyon. Yeah, cause Bryce Canyon is really high. It's really out there, like no civilization, no lights around. So it's a great place for astrophotography. And I really wanted to take some great pictures of the stars. And the, the timing was great, except when we got out there, it was like, oh, nine degrees with wind chill. And it was really <laughs> high and my fingers were frozen. And my my kids ended up, instead of like, being in awe with the stars, they were piled up on a clump on the ground with a blanket over them. <laughs> They're just hovering, and and uh, yeah, they were. They didn't love that, but everybody hated Bryce Canyon. Like, we loved the other experiences, but that one was based on you know this photographic opportunity. And by the time we were done, I think Carter's stomach didn't feel good, and somebody else was just super cold and not in a good mood. <laughs> And they didn't want to go hike and explore the place, but I, I love to get out and hike and be in the outdoors. And I always want to try to capture like what I'm seeing and experiencing so I can share it with others. And it's, it's difficult to view it the same way, but I definitely am a fan of, of kind of like doing the unusual to get some cool shots. Like uh, Bishop Keister and I went out one night, I think we left at about 11 at night or it was know. dark yeah. <laughs> so we, we drove up to uh, outside of sisters by broken top and we hiked up and got to a nice viewpoint that i wanted to be at by about 4 a.m and uh, i set up the camera and shot for a couple hours through sunrise and had a good time doing that and i fell asleep on a rock <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Got, a, got a picture of this nice little this this cozy rock that was so comfortable like i can't believe how comfortable this rock is i think <laughs> uh, and uh, i so appreciate your patience with me on that one while i was just shooting away and Let, yeah, let's do it again do. sometime that was great that's photographers 101 where yeah. <laughs> they're like i'm getting this shot and everybody else is like why are we here <laughs> You got to see the pictures to know why. That's yeah. why. Yeah. I think there's some natural things with photography that we intuitively understand. Like we know that you're learning a skill. We know that it helps to get you out into nature, which is a benefit for a lot of people. But I think there's more to it than that for a lot of people. I was wondering if if you could share maybe some other things that you get out of photography that we might not see on the surface. Hmm. That's a really deep question. I'm not sure if I can answer it. I I do love learning about the aspect of light. And one of the first things when I started taking pictures that I realized was just how much light is available naturally during the daytime. And compared to times where we might be outside and it's a little bit later in the day and we're like, where did all the light go? Like there's just such a, an abundance of light all around us. Without enough light, you know, the, the picture really doesn't come out. And that reminds me and teaches me that if we are, if if one of us is in this, this dining room that we're in, but there's no light, we cannot see the objects around us. We can't discern them. We can't, we can't know what they're made of, what color they are. It's like all these principles about light and how the light of Christ helps us to discern the world around us. What's important, what's not, what what are things made of? What is eternal? What's not eternal? Kind of what color they are or or just what purpose they might have in our lives is is kind of a, a parallel that I love thinking about. Tina, how about you? 
I think part of it goes back to that idea of creation. Um, I think that we are all kind of um, drawn to things that we can be creative with. And um, I think that there's a lot of divinity in that. Um, I think those kinds of feelings come from God. And I think we just create in different ways. And one of the ways I found that I really enjoyed doing was photography. Um, It was something that I am not artistically talented to to create my own art in that way, but I could learn how to use a camera. I, I, the, the intellect part of it is really interesting to me too about the balancing the light and the aperture and, and the shutter speeds and, and framing a, a picture that would be appealing to somebody's eye because of balance things. I, so I think the, the creation of, of something um, really drew me to it and also that that intellectual kind of um, balance, the idea of balance. Um, I've always been attracted to the idea of balance in my life in a lot of different Mm -hmm. ways, but I think that's what speaks to me the most. I just realized you took our last family pictures. I did. (laughs) (laughs) That's cool. That's awesome. He knows a little bit about that. (laughs) That's so cool. I'm not really, I wouldn't really consider myself a photographer, but I'd, I'd like to share a couple of things I've noticed with people that, get really into it and maybe bounce off of you guys if you, you know, kind of agree or or you felt this. I think one thing I've noticed with artists in general is they they learn to see the beauty in small things that a lot of us don't notice. Mm. And then the other thing is I, I think that it's a natural way to learn empathy because you try to understand things that you wouldn't otherwise make the effort for. I'm not what are you guys' thought on thoughts on that? Um, I think the, the especially the part you said about noticing things that we wouldn't normally notice. Like I, I do find myself looking at things differently. Like, oh, the picture would look really good in this way, you know. Um, and not just focusing on the huge overall what I'm seeing, which is really awesome, but also kind of like like you said, zeroing in on it would make a difference to do it from here than it would from this other vantage point, and um, it would make a difference the time of day that you go. Um, and you would see something different just based off of those kind of um, photographic things that are, are involved there. So I think it does has kind of changed the way I look at things when I'm out and about. Uh, for sure, with me too. I can I can look at a rock, and if I don't have my camera, I can be like, "That's a that's a neat looking rock." But if I have if I have my camera, thinking about wow, like how could I frame this, and how could I show how cool this rock is, the unique colors or the contrast beca- between like. The, the lines of grain in it going one way and then swirling around and and you start looking at you know little flowers differently and maybe how could this frame an idea or a picture and one picture that I set up that I really like the idea of was in a concentration camp in Germany I don't remember mm-hmm. which one might have been Buchenwald but uh, everything around was just like gray and dead and reminded me of death and I found some young like green lush vegetation this flower and i wanted to i focused on the flower in the foreground and there was a incinerator incinerator say it for me (laughs) (laughs) there was a place well let's say crematorium for for bodies that they would just put jews in and mass and and burn them take their lives and that was in the background with this like new vibrant young piece of life in the foreground that was that the focus was on that's cool awesome i wanted to ask one other question and this is totally putting tina on the spot i'm sorry i'm sorry (laughs) but 
I I wanted to ask the question about husbands photographing their wives because we don't do it very often. Oh, I was going to say, like, where's we going with this? And, uh, and I'm I'm wondering just if any any thoughts on that topic. I don't know. It is kind of funny because I I do go like if I go back and look at pictures, I have lots of pictures of other people and very few of myself because yeah. I'm I'm not a selfie person. I have very short arms. Selfies do not work out well for me, um, and I just don't like to see myself on camera as much. Um, but also, it would be nice to have a record of me being there. So like, it'd be good if if Alan took more pictures of our family with me in it you know like i think that's a good thing to to think about because i think moms think about oh i want pictures of of these things you know as the kids grow but it, it would be kind of nice to have the dads be like oh you should get in that picture with them or you know yeah. i i wanted to hear your thought because i i have my own opinion about it but i i wanted to hear a different perspective first but i i think honestly and andrew i'll bring you into this too i, I would advise to when you get married, take pictures of your wife, and you know, Noted. <laughs> not only you like like tell her why she's beautiful, you know, and it may it may seem at the time like like you're saying Tina too, and I feel this way as well. Honestly, the pictures never turn out as good as you think, and you always feel like, man, do I really look like that? <laughs> but, Everyone's a little camera shy. Yeah, we're a little camera shy. But ultimately, you know, it it's it marks a point in time and, and it's a memory that you can reflect of. And I think like Peter, you were talking about, the photograph can be a gift. Mm-hmm. You know, it can be a gift to somebody that they use and they appreciate years and years later. I love that. When I when I do, do portraits for families like did the gross nickels, I really do try to focus on what are the pictures that make everybody look good. And that's not just a vanity thing, but I think it is kind of rare for us to have pictures where we're like, oh, I look good in that picture, <laughs> you know? And I think that it is very um, self-affirming to end up with a picture that you weren't expecting. And most of my pictures that come out where I'm like, oh, they look so good in this picture are not posed pictures. Yeah. They're usually very candid shots that I caught when we're walking between things or when somebody's smiling at somebody else or talking to them. Or, um, And I think those moments are my favorite ones to capture because when people get them back, they're like, I, I've never looked good in pictures before. And, and they're just so happy to see themselves with their family members or, or whoever they came to take pictures with. Um, and I think that is just joy. Like, and spoiler alert, 20 years later, you're going to be like, man, I was skinny. Yeah. <laughs> I look good. Like, I look good. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. funny. In there. I am there. Yeah. I love, I love <laughs> candids as well, just for that natural aspect. And, and I like taking candids of Yana, which she doesn't always love, but I, I want people to be able to see Yana and see our kids doing what they normally and naturally do. And there are times when I'm like getting out from being underneath the car and I've, my shirt's all messy and I'm like, oh, I would love to have a picture of myself like this just so the kids can look at it and be like, yeah, that's how I remember dad. Like his shirt is soaked with sweat and it's dirty and he's got stuff in his hair. And, but like, this is, this is what dad did is he was underneath cars and working on them and doing our own maintenance to save money. Or he, you know, was, was building something out of wood. And it's that like a a snippet of our time Mm -hmm. and our hobbies um, that I think is, is really cool to capture. Cool. And I'd love to see more people print pictures. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, what are, we have a, just a few photo albums from when the kids were babies. I haven't printed them in so long, and I need <laughs> I need to take my own advice. But 
when the kids find them, they just sit down and just start looking at them. Like they printed pictures. There's something about having it in your hand and looking through it. And like people just love doing that. And the kids love doing that. And it's it's always yeah. good memories. That's a good family history activity idea, actually. Yeah. Just start super simple, but get a, a group of printed pictures together and just sort through them. I love that. Cool. Well, take pictures of each other. That's that's my message. I guess I, I usually don't tell people what to do, but yeah, you should. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to ask about the silver candlestick story. So uh, Bishop Cosse set it up a little bit in talking about the story of Jean Valjean in Les Mis. And this for me is, is kind of like a synthesis of different principles, not so much an event that's meaningful to me. And that kind of gets to, uh, like Jay, we talked a little bit about small plates and large plates type of events and how you need to keep the daily, the large plates, to be able to have something to reflect on when it comes time for small plate lessons. So anyway, when I say silver candlesticks and I think about Jean Valjean, um, receiving the the gift from the bishop, and, and, and if you're not familiar with the story, this former prisoner is taken in by a bishop and during the night decides that he should rob the bishop, take, take the silver, and that was kind of his, his best way of getting a foot up at life, and he's caught. Uh, very shortly after after leaving, and the bishop comes and says, "Oh no, no, I meant for him to take though. I gave him those things, and also you forgot the silver candlesticks. I want you to have these." So I've asked myself the question: Who gave me my silver candlesticks? And I love to reflect on that. For me, it's somebody who, when I've been around them, has just built me up who has shown great trust in me, so much greater than I had in myself. Someone that, because of this person, I have a foot up in life, or I have so much the advantage because of the way they treated me as a, as a person, as a fallible individual whose weaknesses they knew. And that person for me is my mission president, President Byron Hughes. He came into the mission when I was when I was 10 months away from leaving and I spent a month in the field and then I spent nine months in the office working very closely with President Hughes and he would sometimes take me on car rides, just the two of us, where he would talk to me about principles of being a good husband and how to father and how how to love your wife and stand up for her and things that were just so meaningful, lessons that he had learned as a bishop working to help other people in their relationships. And everything he did conveyed love for me, conveyed trust in me, and, and built up my image of myself. And so I can, I can say absolutely without a doubt that if anyone has given me silver candlesticks, it was President Hughes, and that I was so blessed because I was called into that mission and had the opportunity to serve with him and be served by him. Did you ever get a chance to talk with him about just how meaningful that relationship was? I'm just curious about that part too. We have, yeah. We would talk 
probably five or six times a year after my mission for about the first 10 years. And now it's about once a year, but we still talk. I saw him probably two years ago when I was working somewhere in Idaho and I looked at my watch and said, you know, I can make the trip down to Roy, Utah and see him and then make it over to Boise by midnight where I need to work tomorrow. So it's a plan. I need to see President Hughes. And I went and caught him. Um, he had just come out of an urgent care, got into there for some some heart problems, and he uh, stopped what he was doing and took time to connect with me. That makes me think about who gave me my silver candlesticks. And personally, I think that would be my dad. He he's been such a such a great example to me of being able to connect with people, but also of what work is. Um, every Saturday, we call it Dadder Day, um, <laughs> where, we, where we do all his projects and help him around the yard or in the house doing whatever he wants us to do. But it's been a great experience also working um, with him in his business to be able to learn what it means to have work ethic and to earn money and to be able to support my future family. So, right on. Uh, have you, uh, my question for you, Andrew, is have you expressed that to him or have you told him that? Not as much as I probably should. I would, I would invite I you today to tell him because I, I think it's important that we tell people how much they mean to us. And, and some of it's for them, some of it's for us, though. I think we need to be able to express that to people. And I think for me, too, like I, I've had several people give me silver candlesticks. I think my personal story was more that, you know, I, I had a father who left the church who's who's currently out of my life right now. And I, I have some positive experiences with him, too. I'm not meaning to throw him under the bus. Um, but... I think when you're left without your dad at a young age, you have a hard time answering the question, am I enough and am I a man? And for me, it's been so many men here in the area, Alan Marchant, Kevin Durfee, Steve Jones, uh, Greg Goodrich, gosh, I could just keep naming them, that told me that I was enough and that I was, I was a man and that I was a good person. And I think those are the people that really did that for me. That's so cool. I, I had an, a prompting in 2020 at the end of a, of a long walk. I walked 100 kilometers in 20 hours. And towards the end, I had this awesome spiritual feeling and experience. And there were two or three men that I felt to call and thank. And I called one, and I neglected the other two. And it was less than a week later that one of those had passed away unexpectedly, and I lost the chance to tell him what an awesome example he was to me. Ken Cato, the the dad of a of a good friend of mine, uh, and a a priesthood leader. But I think it's an awesome experience to have that conversation with people and to realize the different people God has put in our lives to lift us and to make an impact and to help us have that example, to show it forward to somebody else. Yeah. I, did, I wanted to know your thoughts too, Tina. I feel like this is a good conversation as well. With the silver mm -hmm. candlesticks. Yeah. 
Gosh, there's a lot. Um, there's a lot of people. Um, for sure, my my parents, uh, you know, kind of gave me my first silver candlesticks for sure. Um, there's a lot I could unpack there. But I was just thinking about smaller, like smaller uh, times when people have just kind of given me a candlestick. I was talking about this with Alan the other day about just an event that probably was insignificant to the person that was involved, but changed me forever changed me. And it was just really simple. She just called me out on some crap that I was doing and and that I wasn't being very kind on my volleyball team. And I was just being way too intense. And it wasn't helping the team and it was dragging them down. And she said like one sentence to me about it, you know, and and I have not forgot that. That was, I don't know, 25 years ago. And um, it changed me. And it changed me on the spot. And I think I think I have a lot more of those type moments where it was just small things that that built me up rather than like major candlesticks. Like, yeah. And I think it's important to tell people about those moments, too. We don't realize the impact we have in people's lives. Yeah. I've got follow up questions. So, Tina, when when that person called you out, what kind of a relationship did you have with her? Did you already hold her? highly it and do you think you could have had that experience with somebody who didn't know you we we've been teammates for i don't know 3 or 4 years so and in multiple sports so we were on volleyball and softball together um so i had a lot of respect for her um i wouldn't say that we we didn't hang out really on the weekends because i was the only member ever on my sports teams and i always hung out with my member friends on the weekends we went to dances and things um not as much with some of the school friends and and her morals were different than my morals and and she went to different kind of parties than I would go to but um as a person she was amazing and so I I would definitely say there was a lot of respect there and so it definitely hit me hard that that she would think that about me and and it changed me um if it had come from like a stranger I think sometimes that's even more impactful hmm. Sometimes it makes us mm-hmm. more defensive. Yep. <laughs> you know? yep. We're natural. It, in the moment, it's like that, that natural defense. Um, I did have one time Brooke was, she was about three, and throwing a complete fit because I don't even remember how it started, but she'd done something. She had this little purse, and she'd done something with it, and and I had said, you know, don't do that again, or I'm going to have to take it away kind of thing, and and she did it again. So I, I took the purse, and it was just meltdown, just complete meltdown. We left the store, and I was waiting outside because my I was waiting for my mom, and we ended up at the car, and Brooke's screaming and kicking, and it's very unusual <laughs> for her to do that. So I'm getting very upset, too, because I'm just not used to dealing with with her doing that. And so I just, I was like, I'm done. And I put her in her car seat and I'm kind of like struggling with her and she's kicking me. And, and I finally get her buckled and I just slam the door and I'm just standing outside the car, just <laughs> like kind of fuming. And there was a woman that came up and she said, you know, she started questioning me, like, is everything okay? And in that moment, I was super defensive. Like, it's none of your business. I didn't say out loud because I'm not very good at confrontation. So I was I was holding in for sure. But she was kind of like almost accusing me of child abuse, like, mm-hmm. you know, be careful what you're doing kind of thing. And I, I explained her through the situation a little. Um, she gave me some unsolicited advice that I didn't appreciate. <laughs> um, I won't mention what I was thinking in my head. But um, it's, and afterwards, though, thinking about it, so in the moment, I think coming from a stranger is like, you're way more defensive. But then thinking about it, I appreciated that she was willing. Sorry, I don't know why I'm getting so emotional. But she was willing to step in 
for my daughter. Hmm. And she was worried for her. And I, I appreciated that um, she was willing to do that and be that person. Um, sorry, kids make me emotional. Um, but anyway, like, so afterwards I could appreciate what she was saying and it did change me and made me think about things differently. It helped me gain patience and realize that how I'm presenting when those kinds of situations is important too, even if I'm frustrated and I'm not doing anything wrong, but it's important to have more patience. And, and so I think there are lessons to be learned from strangers, but it is harder. I think it's harder because you get way more defensive. It's like, whoa. I can't believe that stranger's calling me out on that. Yeah. Uh, kudos for you to be able to see it in a different light. So that is awesome. Well, I, I like your small plates and large plates. That was a good analogy. There, dude, I like that analogy. And it, I, I think we've even talked, it segueing a bit, even about this podcast. And I feel like it, it can be large platey for a lot of it. And then I feel like every episode, though, it's usually when we start crying about something. <laughs> Because that's how a lot of us feel the spirit, right? I feel right? like it's mostly I've, me. But. I feel like those are <laughs> small plate moments yeah. as well that we have throughout. So. I love it. All right. We are getting close to time. We've already shown, at least here on the show notes, that Taylor Swift is off limits, apparently. I'm sorry, guys. So, you just said it out loud. Yeah. Right. Well, I did. It was kind of my way that's of sneaking it, it in, like... Let's not talk about it by talking about it. Um, <laughs> but uh, Andrew, what else did you want to talk about? So you have on here, you have an MTC companion experience. Um, why was that so memorable for you? Oh, I, I hope that this experience changed my life because it totally changed my perspective at the time. I flew to the MTC uh, I said goodbye to my parents like at the airport and, and my oldest brother when I was going to go be a missionary. It was the day before and he was leaving. That was the last time I was going to see him. I was on the phone with the girl and he popped his head into my door and he's like, bye, Pete. And I pulled the phone away from my head, probably four inches. And I was like, bye, Vaughn. And that's how he said goodbye for a couple of years. <laughs> and I flew to the MTC and a buddy picked me up and, and drove me into the actual MTC. And, and I got there fairly late. It seemed like everybody had checked in. The, the meeting with the parents had already finished, which they used to do. And I got this card that had the name of my companion on it. And I looked at it and it said, Elder George Lewis Stillings III. I was like, whoa, what is this what is this elder going to be like? <laughs> I got to my room and there were there were four missionaries there, including myself, but my companion was from a family of one of the five hundred richest men in America. Uh, his grandfather owned Boyd Gaming Company, one of the largest gaming companies in Las Vegas and in the world. He had joined the church, my companion had joined the church when he was about sixteen. And then left the church, had his name removed, and joined again when he was like 19 or 20. And he was now like 22 years old and on a mission and supposedly had a girlfriend that he was engaged with that was waiting for him. But he had six pieces of luggage when we were counseled to have two. He had 15 white shirts, and he would often go through three or four different white shirts in a day if they got too creased. You know, he bragged that he didn't own a tie that cost less than $100. 
And uh, my ties were definitely worthless. <laughs> uh, the first thing he said to me, though, I mean, I mean, it's it's fine to have money and come from a rich family and and be baptized, rebaptized. But the first thing he said to me was, "I was trained in the military how to kill peons like you." And he turned to the other three of us and said, "I don't have to like you guys. You're just somebody I was assigned to be with by a woman in an office in Salt Lake." said in a real derogatory manner. And I really struggled with Elder Stillings. I had the impression that I was in the MTC to learn the language and to learn the lessons, and he was getting in my way. He was really struggling with German. It often was kind of disruptive in class when he would share. For example, I had a teacher who asked us all to think of a, of a real spiritual moment, time where we had felt the Holy Ghost strongly. And he was like, I just can't think of one. And the teacher asked him, well, how about your baptism? And he's like, well, which one? And neither one was very spiritual. Well, how about the missionaries who taught you? Oh, they were idiots. They didn't know anything. Just really exactly. like, couldn't find a spiritual experience. And at night, he would put on a yarmulke and read prayers out of a prayer book. And he had a big fat black marker that he would take to the scriptures, Book of Mormon or Bible, and just mark out anything he didn't like. Um, he told us all that, that if his wife ever got pregnant before she was 30, he would make her have an abortion. Just just these things that I think were meant to like shock us. And I wondered, who is this guy? Like, is he is he really a reporter trying to get some dirt? But then he'd try to fit in a little bit more. Um, so why why is this person here? And the negative comments from him to me were were difficult for me to handle. I felt really alone. One day, a teacher pulled me in for a one-on-one -on -one interview, and it was a sister who was very insightful. She said, Elder Grossmichael, I want you to know my family back at home are praying for you by name. Like We're aware of the challenges that you're going through, um, being companions with other Stillings. The mission president in Germany and his wife are praying for you by name, and it just blew my mind. I was like, whoa, people know that I'm having a hard time and people that I don't even know are praying for me. It was overwhelming. She said, Elder Grossnickel, you're not here to learn the language and to learn the lessons. You'll you'll learn those and you'll do fine. You are here for Elder Stillings. He needs someone to show him love and to show him acceptance and to be an example of the Savior Jesus Christ. And it just hit me. My farewell talk had been about love and how important love was. But my whole mindset was like, I'm in the MTC. I'm preparing to be a missionary. Once I get to Germany, I'll be a missionary and I can be a representative of Christ. And here was someone telling me, you're a representative of Jesus Christ now. Like This is your mission. And Elder Stillings is part of your assignment, part of your mission. And that change in perspective just blew my mind and totally humbled me for the first time. You know, I went out of my way to connect with him on things that were important to him. For example, he was a, a, a scholar in the book of Revelations and knew about all these signs and symbols that I had no idea about. And I asked him about these and we had the first real conversation we had had. We'd been together about a month and hadn't had like a real personal conversation. He got excited about me asking him about the book of Revelations. We got to the point where before we all went to Germany, uh, Elder Stillings felt 
overwhelming love from me and from the other two elders and Boris testimony and said his heart was about to burst. He told us that he loved us and that he had never said that to anyone in his life, including his parents. Sadly, a month after service, he went home, he left the church again, got into drinking, restored the Log Cabin Republic or Log Cabin Republican Association in Colorado and then was killed by a drunk driver. Um, but the experience and the lesson to me is that a lot of times in life we're waiting for something to happen. Like once I get this job or once I graduate or once I'm actually a set apart missionary or once I get to the country I'm serving in, you know, then I turn it on. Then I am a servant of Jesus Christ. But we are baptized disciples of Jesus Christ who have covenanted to always remember him, take his name upon us, to keep his commandments to be like him. And I absolutely need those reminders all the time. This was a powerful reminder to me. Thank you for that. I guess we'll we'll wrap this episode up. I get the honors of saying the, the final question that they always ask. So as a member of this church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, how has that experience along with your testimony helped you throughout your life? Oh, thank you. I often view the church and the gospel a little bit differently. Um, Elder, oh man, why am I blank? Elder Hallstrom, Donald Hallstrom of the 70, gave a, a great message in General Conference like converted to Christ through the the church. And I look at the gospel of Jesus Christ being something that's perfect, that's everlasting. And the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints being something that has the Savior's authority, but it's not perfect because it's led by imperfect people. And it's not eternal. And as I study parts of the Book of Mormon, where they had more of kind of a, kind of a family-based religious structure rather than an, an official church structure that was established by Alma, there are some, some differences. But I love learning what I can from when King Benjamin gave his sermon, and there was such great conversion, and the people's names were taken, they were willing to enter into a covenant, a generation or two after that, those families that maybe didn't teach the gospel in their home, the scriptures record that some followed the gospel and some, especially among the rising generation, were not righteous and were not following the gospel. I think, for me, a great blessing of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is that it gives me accountability in living the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the vehicle by which I've received my testimony and the vehicle by which I've received my covenants that bind me to Jesus Christ, that give me a North Star of how to live and ultimately answer all the difficult questions in my life, knowing that I have covenanted to live the law of sacrifice, give all that I have and am to the Savior, make so many questions easier, and I'm and I and I forget that too often, and I'm not who I should be um, many times. And I'm also grateful that hearing the experiences of other people, 
their failings as well as their strengths helps me to remember to repent and remember who I need to be and to be part of the body of Christ where we're all striving. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Connection Podcast. And guys, I don't do this all the time, but I want to ask you a favor because I think that we've all been given silver candlesticks by somebody. Some of us, it's a lot of people. And I don't think we're that great at thanking those who have had some of the biggest impact in our life. So here's what I want you to do, and I'll do it too. I want you to call or text or talk face-to-face with those people who had profound impact in your life or showed you kindness and just let them know about it. Can we do that? I think we can. That is it for today. We're excited about what is happening the rest of the month. We're unveiling our new mini-series, Who Are Becoming. Tina Marchand will be our first victim. Did we call it victim? Our first guest. And then we're going to have a special episode with President Cornelius and his wife of the Eugene Mission. Look forward. Until then, take care.